Um, I'm going to be uh, teaching primarily from the Passion Translation. Yeah, anyone love the Passion Translation? It's a new one. Uh, it's uh, brought out by uh, Brian Simmons. Uh, obviously, he is the primary translator. It's then put through a system of scholars and people like that to double check, so he's not completely off the rails. Uh, but it's certainly um, translated in a way, I think from a perspective that probably uh, flows with, uh, with where we are um, as a community, I think in, in terms of, uh, and this is the thing, any Bible translation, um, there's always, it's a translation, which means there's, it's converting it from one style of language, one cultural context into, uh, into a Western kind of understanding. So, um, but it is something where, uh, I know because I've had this conversation with, uh, with Lisa, my wife, about, what, you know, is it, a, is it a paraphrase? Is it like the message? It's actually a proper translation. And so there's different translation types when it comes to the Bible. I'm sure you are not uh, all that interested in it, but if you are, um, you know, so something like the ESV, the English Standard Version, is an essentially literal translation. So they try and translate as accurately to the original words as what they have in the manuscripts. And so that's from the Hebrew, uh, the Greek, and the Aramaic uh, kind of language and text. Uh, so something uh, like the Passion Translation is what's called formal equivalence, uh, which is more of like a thought for thought. So ESV is word for word. Um, the Passion Translation, like the NIV and other translations, are thought for thought. So they're not necessarily trying to say, well, this is the Greek word, and we're going to use the, the best word for that. They'll take a, a, a sentence or a, a passage or a, a you know, section of Scripture and then say, what is the original meaning of that and how do we put it in a language that gives meaning to our kind of context today. So if you're wondering about that um, or for the 95% of you who could not care less, um, I apologize for wasting a minute of your time. All right. Hebrews chapter 4. And one thing I love about the Passion Translation is because it's, it's kind of just coming from this... Um, I don't even know how to explain it. It's just coming from this kind of uh, modern thing that God's doing in the kingdom. This is what I think anyway. But I love then reading passages of Scripture that I know, and I know really well, and I've read lots and lots of times, and just what he draws out of those, and what he draws out of the original text is, um, this is like, oh yeah, I've never seen it in that way. I've never viewed it in that way, you know, and uh, so anyway. This is where we are. So, for we have the living word of God, which is full of energy, and it pierces more sharply than a soldier's sword. This is, you might remember, uh, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Yeah, you've heard that before. It will even penetrate to the very core of our being, where soul and spirit, bone and marrow meet, splitting them in two. It scrutinizes and reveals the true thoughts and motives of our hearts. There is not one person who can hide their thoughts from God, for nothing that we do remains a secret, and nothing created is concealed, because everything is exposed and defenseless before His eyes to whom we are accountable. Your whole life, every part, even every thought is exposed to God. Feeling uncomfortable yet? <laughs> but it is, so God knows, He's... Who can hide their thoughts from God? Well, the, the assumed answer is nobody. Every part of who you are is exposed to the Lord. That can be a really bad thing or a really good thing, depending on what God is like. So your sin is not hidden from God. And it says, so then, because of that, 
because nothing is hidden from God, so then we must cling in faith to all that we know to be true. For we have a magnificent king priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who rose into the heavenly realm. He did that for us. And now he sympathizes with us in our frailty. He understands humanity. For as a man, our magnificent king priest was tempted in every way, just as we are. And he conquered sin. So now we come freely and boldly to where love is enthroned, to receive mercy's kiss and discover the grace we urgently need to strengthen us in our time of weakness. Amen? All right. So I'm just going to pull out a few parts of this verse. Um, One thing he says, it says he rose into the heavenly realm. And so this is an understanding of Jesus went into the throne room. He went, the, the, the heavens are the the throne of god it says it says that somewhere in isaiah i think and the earth it says the heavens are his throne the earth is his footstool so understanding that when when it talks about jesus uh, rose into the heavenly realm it's, it's speaking of him going into those deeper places it's not just that oh he ascended to heaven but what he accomplished in that place and i'm going to pull out the imagery of what uh, of the the writer of hebrews is getting to here but essentially, this is the, the throne room, all the mercy seat. And again, I'll get to that. So this is the Old Testament understanding of the temple, the different parts of the temple. But it's saying that Jesus went into the holiest of places in order to accomplish a work for us. So it says we must cling in faith to all that we know to be true. And it talks about Jesus. He rose into the heavenly realm for us. And now he sympathizes us with us in our frailty. And this word is, he sympathizes. He has sympathy, not anger or frustration. So when you are frail, when you are weak, God doesn't look upon you in disgust. When you struggle with sin, when you're trapped in, in some form of addiction, when you've, there's brokenness in your life, God doesn't look at you and go, oh, I can't, when are you going to get this? I'm just so sick and tired of your brokenness. I'm so sick and tired of your weakness. Not at all, but he looks upon us with sympathy. And he understands humanity. For as a man, he was tempted in every way, just as we are. How many ways was Jesus tempted? Every way. Is that a lot? It was literally every single possible way. I don't quite understand how that could happen. But according to the writer of the Hebrews, that's what happened. That Jesus was tempted in every way. And, and yet he conquered sin. He didn't give in to those temptations. Is that good? He was tempted in every way, just as we are, and he conquered sin. So now we can come freely and boldly to where love is enthroned. That means that we can come freely and boldly into the heavenly, because of what Jesus accomplished, we get to come freely and boldly into that place. And he says, to receive mercy's kiss and discover the grace we urgently need to strengthen us in our time of weakness. So we need the kiss of God, the mercy kiss of God. We need to receive His mercy and we need to receive His grace and grace and strength are connected there. We need to understand that grace and strength are connected. We need God to live out the life that He has for us. And we need it in our time of weakness. God understands our weakness and He has provided help for us. Amen? So grace and mercy are in the throne room. We don't need grace and mercy to get into the throne room. 
we need to get into the throne room to get grace and mercy. And this was revelatory for me because for a long time I always thought, well, God is holy. He can't be in the presence of sin. He is separate from me. He is over there in distance. And I really want to get into that place. I want to get closer to God. I want to press into intimacy. And as we, you know, this revelation of, oh, the intimate journey, God wants to be close to me and he wants me to be close to him. And I can't get out of these heavenly encounters. Well, what do I need to do in my life to get myself sorted so that I can get into that place? Well, I need God's grace I need his forgiveness. I need all of these things to happen every day just so I can feel somehow worthy to enter into that place. You need to get into the throne room. So often we think that we need to get it all right before we can have access to God. But actually the opposite is true. He has given us access so that we can receive all that we need to live the life that he has called us to. Anyone mind-blown yet at all, even in a small way? Like this was like, this is, this is the opposite of what I've been taught in some ways. This is the opposite of what I've believed about God. Well, what's the point of the throne room? Well, that's kind of like the super spiritual, hardcore, fast, you know, eight days a week and read their Bible for 26 hours a day and, you know, just pray all constantly. Like those kinds of people, like, oh, they get to go into that, into that deep place. Well, not according to Hebrews 4. It says, no, no, w- when you're in your weakness, that's when you need to come into the throne. That's the storehouse of everything that you need so you can live out the life that I have for you. It's not go out and live the life that I have for you. And if you do that right, you will earn your entrance into the throne room. It's the exact opposite. So when you're struggling in sin, when you're trapped in brokenness, you go, I just can't, I can't even find God today. Well, then what you need to do is go into the throne room, get his mercy and grace, and then you'll be able to go, okay, now I have that grace and empowerment to find him, to walk out that life. I want to encourage you, stop worrying about your weakness. I want to ask you the question, who told you that you need to be strong as a Christian? I'm not saying that you have to be weak or you pursue weakness. Paul certainly would, says that he boasts in his weakness. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The grace of God is sufficient for me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to let everybody know this is how weak I am. When I position myself in that place of weakness, then I know where I need to go to get the grace and the mercy that I need. Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So where should we be strong? In the Lord. What does that mean? You know, sometimes you just get those kind of Christian phrases that you hear over and over, and you assume, what does it mean, in the Lord? Strong in the Lord. Be strong, just be strong in the Lord, brother. Strong in the Lord. Well, in, in the Lord. Like, so going into that place, connected, deep, intimate, that's where my strength is found. Not be strong so that you can be in the Lord. So where do you find your strength? You find it in the throne room. You find it in the place of intimacy. And this is because, as as Paul says, and I'm going to draw out the imagery soon, but that Jesus has made the way. So there's no limit to your access to the throne room. All that we need to walk in fullness is found in intimacy and encounter. I go to God because I need Him. 
we go to God and we press into that place because we need the washing of the word of what he speaks over us. We need him. We are weak on our own. He is not sending us off to go and get it right so we can come and have an encounter with him. He's like, no, come and come into my throne room. Come into that place of intimacy. And in that place, then you'll be able to go out and walk. Then you'll be able to go out and conquer sin. Then you'll be able to go out and, and do all the things that I've called you to do. But we have to fight against our natural thought patterns and tendencies. Hiding is a natural response to sin. It happened first sin, Adam and Eve in the garden. What was their response? It says uh, Genesis 3 verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Their first response after sin when they hear the Lord is to run and hide. Bad move. But it's the same lie that we walk in, don't we, yeah? Has anyone in this room ever sinned? Put your hand up, yeah? All right. Is, your, is it your first and natural tendency just to run into the throne room with boldness and confidence? No. It's to scurry away, hide under a rock, you know, do something. And it, it, but that's our natural tendency. So we actually have to fight against our natural tendency. And this is what it says in verse 14. So then we must cling in faith to all that we know to be true. Cling in faith. So it's like, I don't see it, I don't believe it, I don't feel it, but I know it to be true because the Bible has told me you can come confidently and boldly into the throne room when you need grace and mercy. Not after you've got it all sorted out, right in the midst of you messing up radically. Where do you need to go? Not where can you go, where do you need to be? You need to be in the throne room. You need to be in that place. There is no other option for you. There is no other way that you're going to make it right. We have to grasp tightly to the truth that we've been told and, and not to the truth that might be resonating in our hearts. Our heart, and this is the weird thing. It's like my heart is telling me to run the opposite direction. Hebrews 4 is telling me to run towards the Lord. Okay, no, but God, okay, okay, so I repent and I seek forgiveness and I go get some prayer ministry and I do, do, do this thing and then it's been, it's been a, a week since I've sinned in any known way, God. Okay, now Sunday's come around, worship time. Oh, yes, I can get into the throne room this morning. Awesome, because the worship is great. I'm, I'm here and I'm like, I look behind. It's, it's, a, it's a distant memory of my sin, so I'm ready, God. I can come into your throne room. come knocking on the door it's like who are you i don't know you're nice to meet you clearly you need to come in so you got so you, i can give you some grace to strengthen you so you can work on your pride and self-righteousness god has dealt with your sin from his perspective now he is trying to deal with sin from your perspective God has dealt with your sin from his perspective. So from his perspective, he's like, I've dealt with your sin. Once and for all, Jesus died once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 
So he's, he's dealt with it. So from God's perspective, he's looking going, okay, I'm, I, I, I see that you're struggling, but from my perspective, it's been dealt with, okay? Now, from your perspective, it hasn't been dealt with because you're still walking in it. You're still living in these kinds of ways. Okay, so what you need to do, because I've got no issue with you right now, you need to come to me because I know how to conquer sin. Because Jesus is saying, I was tempted in every way. I totally understand. And I sympathize with you. I'm like, dude, that's hard. I get it. I, I fully understand what it's like to be tempted. But guess what? I overcame sin. Not only did I break and conquer the power of it, but even in those moments, I know what it is to access the grace of God to be able to walk in righteousness. Because I did it every day of my life for the 33 years that I was on earth. Every day I went through that and every day I had access and every day I didn't fail. So you want to know how to do it? Come and talk to me. I have the insight and I have the power to be able to help you to walk in it. The cross satisfied God. The resurrection purchased new life for you. And now God is present to help us to walk out that new and abundant life. The throne room is open to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The door doesn't close when you're struggling. The door doesn't close when you've ignored God for a couple of days. The door doesn't close when you're trapped in some addiction or brokenness or you just yelled at your kids or something like that. It's, it's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It contains all that you need to walk in righteousness, but if you don't access it, then you don't get it. So you continue on struggling away, trying to overcome, trying to battle through, trying to get free, seeking out every opportunity. And God's like, I have every resource that you need. So it talks about the throne of grace. And, uh, and this is a, a, a reference, well, scholars assume, to the mercy seat of God. And we find this in Exodus uh, 25. You can read it later, verses 17 to 22. But this is where they had the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark was what's called the mercy seat. And I'll read, this is a note from a um, book. Uh, so it says, it's a, the mercy seat was a solid slab of pure gold formed uh, as the lid on top of the Ark, and it was called the mercy seat or the kaporoth. It was the cover or lid placed on the Ark, and signified the covering or removal of sins by means of expiatory sacrifice. I'll explain that in a minute. The mercy seat signifies the place of propitiation. I'll also explain that. It, it received its name from the blood of propitiation, which was sprinkled on it on the day of atonement. That's in Leviticus 16. It is the place where justice and mercy meet. The blood of the innocent victim on the mercy seat met the holy demands of God's law. The Old Testament throne of grace was the place where God exhibited his presence and met man in his grace. So you've got the Ark of the Covenant. It's in the, the tabernacle, or the, you know, which was the kind of mobile temple that they had. And it sat there. And that was where the sacrifice was done on the Day of Atonement, or what the, uh, they called Yom Kippur. And they would go in and there would be two, two goats. Essentially, that would be sacrificed. One would be like slaughtered. And all the sins of the people uh, would be put onto like... So, okay, that... One goat was for uh, the wrath of God to be poured out on. Essentially, that goat was killed for the sins of the people. Okay? So it was slaughtered, sacrificed on the mercy seat in that place. And that was what we call propitiation, which is the removal of wrath. So God's like, uh, my wrath will be satisfied when, when an animal is slaughtered in place of the people. 
Okay? So one day of the year, the priest would come into the Holy of Holies. Hopefully they were pure and they had all the right garments on and all that sort of stuff. Otherwise, they would be struck down dead. So that's just, you know, you would have heard they tied a rope to their leg. So when they went to the Holy of Holies, if they weren't completely done all this stuff right, they'd be struck down dead. Then they'd have a rope to be able to pull the dead body out. I love that. And um, who's putting their hands up to volunteer for that one? So, um, yeah. And so they'd do that. And then the other goat, which is called the scapegoat, is where they would then kind of put all of the prayers of the people onto that goat, and then they'd send that goat out into the wilderness. And that's what we call expiation, which is the removal of sin. So there's the removal of wrath, and there's the removal of the defilement of sin. Propitiation, expiation. Yeah? You could go and teach a Bible college class now. There you go. Just for Yeah. So we understand that the, uh, this is how they would do sacrifices in the Old Testament. This was, then would pay the price for the sin, remove the sin from the people, so they can then do another year in relationship with God. But then it talks about Jesus being our great high priest. So he is then the great high priest who has gone into that place, into the throne room. He has become the sacrifice. He has become the scapegoat. So not only has he uh, received the wrath of God in your place, he has removed the sin of his people from them and place them upon himself. So we understand that Jesus then represents that imagery. So on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, once a year, a sole person entered the vow of the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. Leviticus 16, if you want to look it up. It foretold in picture form the day when our great high priest would enter the veil and make atonement for our sins. The blood of the sin offering was sprinkled upon the mercy seat which constituted Yahweh's throne. There his infinite holiness and justice met with his mercy. God was satisfied with a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. So that's done in that throne room, on that mercy seat, in that place. So it means that you can come boldly. This is all of the imagery of Hebrews 4. He's saying Jesus, the great high priest, he has done the work, he has completed the work from God's perspective towards you. So you can now come boldly into the throne room, not like the Old Testament priests. They came in petrified because if they weren't completely clean, they were, they were scared of being struck down dead. We come in boldly because Jesus paid the price for all of our sin. He has satisfied the wrath of God and he has removed all of the sin from our life, all the defilement of sin. This is good news. Anyone happy about this at all? All right. So it says, come in boldness, not in timidity. So don't, we don't even come, and this is kind of spinning me out. It's just like we don't even come like, you know, like Oliver Twist, please, please, Father, can I have some more? Like, more grace? I gave you grace yesterday. And it, you know, it's like we, when I come like that, we come boldly and confidently because of what Jesus has done. We're like, man, that sacrifice was so complete, so perfect, Jesus. You fully finished the work. So I now, I can come in behind you boldly and confidently. Not that I'm going to get struck down. Not that anything's going to happen to me. But in that place is access for all that I need. And this word confidence or parousia in the Greek, it means a freedom in speaking, unreservedness in speech openly, frankly, without concealment, without ambiguity or circumlocution. Circumlocution. Anyone know what that means? It's like where you use more words than what is necessary. So you kind of flower in, you know, all of these words and God's like, just get to the point. <laughs> like, tell me what you need. 
free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage, boldness, and assurance. That's what the word, when it says come confidently, it's like come completely free, open. I'm just going to tell God exactly what I need. Father, I need grace because in this area I'm struggling, but I just think I can come boldly before your throne to receive what I need. I'm not like, oh man, I've done it again. And, oh, what's God going to say when I go into the throne room today? Even if I, if I can build up the courage even to get in there, I'm like, I'm just, I'm afraid of what he's going to say. Opposite, upside down of that. So what about pride? That sounds like you kind of come in. Well, I'm just going to come and boldly into the throne room. God, I'm here and this is what I need. And it's like, well, who do you think you are, Brad? You're, you're a, like, you're sin and you're broken. You've got all this stuff. Who are you to come before the Lord in that kind of way? Anyone get that feeling like, well, I, I, I can't do that. Like, I know who I am. You know, I'm, I'm pitiful and weak and he is straight. He's the Lord of Lords. But the fact is that because you're coming in weakness, it, the natural consequence is that your pride gets stripped. Because the only reason I'm coming before you, Lord, boldly is because I am weak, because I am struggling and because I need you. I need your mercy and I need your grace. If I, the thing is, the opposite is actually true. Pride keeps you out of the throne room. So, well, I could never go before the Lord in that kind of way. I might come, you know, dragging my face along the floor, you know, climbing, over, crawling over glass, and then I might come into the throne room because, you know, he's holy and I'm not, and I'm doing all this sort of stuff. It's like, that's because you're arrogant <laughs> and proud. God's like, no, no, come boldly because the sacrifice has been done and you need me. I wrote here, it's a throne room, not a ballroom. He's not a- God's not after your performance. He's after your dependence. He's not after you get all yourself all doled up and all nice dressed and then come into the throne room. Here I am, Lord. Come to present myself holy and pure before your sight. Marvel at my righteousness. <laughs> God's like, yeah, that's just pitiful, like. Have a look in the mirror. Can you see what you're actually wearing? You know? That's what I do when I go into the throne room. Ta-da! But you know what I mean? Like, he's, he's like, no, I, want you, I don't want you to perform for me. I don't want you to do a dance. I want you to walk in the fullness of the life, the abundant life that I purchased for you. I want you to know me deeply and intimately, but you've got to come to the throne room to receive that empowerment to go and do those things, to go and live that life. So Jesus being tempted and overcoming sin is less about his ability to overcome sin for himself and more about his ability to help you to overcome sin. So it's not like Jesus saying, oh, you sinned again. Well, when I was on earth, I was tempted in every way and I didn't sin. (laughs) Just thought I should remind you of how perfect I am. You know, thanks Jesus. I'm pretty sure I already know you're perfect. We all get it, Jesus. You're perfect. You know, you didn't sin. You're tempted in every way. It's like, it's not, it's not the, he's not trying to rub it in that you suck and he is awesome. He's saying, no, no, I, I understand what it's like to be tempted. But you know what? I've got a secret. I had access to the throne room. I had access to, to the Father's mercy and His grace. You know, because it's like, how did, you, how did you do it, Jesus? By the power of the Holy Spirit, by God's grace and mercy. 
and this is this thing, and, and again, it's a hard concept to get around, but fully God and, and fully man, but uh, Philippians, you know, talks about Jesus did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, coming in the form of a servant. Like he, Jesus came dependent, not just in the physical as a baby, but every day of his life on earth was in dependency to the Holy Spirit. That's why, how much, how many miracles did Jesus do before the Holy Spirit came upon him? How much public ministry did Jesus do before the Holy Spirit came upon him? Apart from when he was 12, but that wasn't really public ministry, but you know what I'm saying. You know, it was, it was when the Holy Spirit came, the power of the Holy Spirit, when he was baptized or immersed in the Holy Spirit, that's when he went out and started doing what he needed to do. Because apart from that, he could not do anything. And I'm not saying that he couldn't. He chose not to. He put off his humanity, his divinity, and put on humanity. So because Jesus was tempted in every way and didn't sin... It means that when you are tempted in any way, he is able to help you to overcome that sin. And so it says that we receive mercy and grace in our time of weakness, in our time of need. So the word mercy is the word helios, which means kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and afflicted, joined with a desire to help them. It's like always like the, the little cry and the pause. Is he going to make it? Is he going to make it? Oh, no, he's crying fully. That's all right. <laughs> we get that in our house sometimes. You hear a bang and then you wait. Oh, no cries. Oh, cool. <sighs> so it's kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and afflicted, but joined with a desire to help them. So again, God's like, oh, mercy is like, I'm giving mercy towards you because I can see where you're at, but it comes with a desire to help you. When you sin, God's not going, I can't believe you stuffed up again. How many times do we have to go through this? He's like, I see you, son. I see you, daughter. And I have mercy for where you're at. Because Jesus is with me and he explained to me what it's like to be on earth. What it's like the hardship and struggle for you to go through. He, I understand. So I'm merciful towards you, and I have a desire to help you. I'm, there's kindness coming from the Lord towards you. When you are struggling in sin, there is kindness coming towards you from the Father. Are we getting, we're like, this, this, is, this needs to sink in deep into our heart, deep into our spirit, because this radically transforms how we live in relationship to God and on the earth. So it's receiving mercy and receiving grace. It's so important that we have a right understanding of grace. Grace is not a covering for sin. It's an empowerment for righteousness. That's what the grace of God is. And now I encourage you, we've got this picture of grace. It's like, oh, sin, it's okay. God's grace covers me. I'm good. That's, that's, that's not what it means. It's free from God. The, the sacrifice of Jesus has paid the price for your sin, okay? That's why it's paid for, okay? God doesn't overlook your sin. He has mercy towards you when, you're sin, when you sin, so you're not cut off from relationship. He has kindness towards you and a desire to help. And then he says, and I have grace, which empowers you to walk in a different way. This is why Romans, somewhere where sin abounds, grace abounds also, yeah, if you just read, start at chapter 1 in Romans and read to the end, you'll find it in there somewhere. Where sin abounds, grace abounds also. Well, what does that mean in the light of, of just grace covers sin? This means, essentially, I can just sin heaps and God's grace covers me. Awesome. 
No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying where, where sin abounds, there is a greater measure of God's empowerment for you to overcome that sin in your life. So you can say, there's an area in my life where sin is just abounding. God's like, don't worry, I'm not here to cover it. I'm here to free you from it. What? I don't want to live a life that just says, it's okay, it's covered. So I'm going to live in bondage or live in addiction, you know, live trapped in sin for the rest of my life, but it's okay because His grace just covers me and makes it okay. I don't want to walk in that way. I want to walk like Jesus. I don't want to do those things. I want to be free. I want to be walking in righteousness because that's what He's called me to live in. Freedom from those things. So where is the empowerment for righteousness if it's not found in grace? can't find it in the scripture so if you're struggling with sin you're trapped in bondage there's some area of brokenness in your life and we come boldly before God's throne and we say father I've sinned I'm struggling in this area Lord and I thank you and I, I confess that to you or I confess it to a brother I thank you that you hear my prayer that you forgive me in that moment for that thing it's it's all good but he says, son or daughter, it's a good thing that I've paid the price for all your sin. So lucky that when you've come to me confessing, you say, it's a good thing that I paid the price for it all. You really dodged a bullet there. You know, it's like, it's good. Okay, so you've come before me and, and, and he's not shocked. He's like, we've, we've paid the price for that. Now here is my mercy and here is my grace so that you can come out of that old pattern of living. You can overcome that struggle. You can break free from that addiction and you can walk in the wholeness that I desire for you. That's why we come to the throne room of God. To receive all that we need in our time of weakness so that we can walk out the life that God has for us. We cannot walk in the way of Jesus without His empowerment, without His grace. We cannot walk out the abundant life God has for us without grace. Life with Jesus isn't easy. But it's a heck of a lot easier with grace. Because if we understand, see, again, when we think of grace, it somehow oh, it just alleviates my feeling of guilt about my sin. That's not the point of it. <laughs> Jesus dealt with your guilt and shame on the cross. That's the revelation that you need, that, that the power of sin has been broken in your life. That's the revelation that you need. The cross and the resurrection is the revelation, not His grace. The cross and the resurrection is a revelation. That's the truth you need to hold on to. Even when it says, hold fast to that truth. It's like, okay, I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I know that he rose again, conquering Satan's sin and death. I know that bit. So it means that I can come boldly before the throne room because there is nothing inhibiting me. But what I do know is that I can't live without his grace to walk out the new life that he's purchased for me. We can't do it. God doesn't oppose us when we sin. God opposes us when we walk in pride and don't come to Him for help. So James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but He gives what to the humble? Grace. Where's His grace? It's on the throne of grace. So when we come in humility into the throne room of grace, boldly but with humility, and we come in and say, Father, I, I need this. I need you today, Lord. I'm really struggling. I can't do it any longer. And the father's like, I'm so glad you came, son. I'm so glad that you came, daughter. I have a storepile. Even you see, you know, I know that in your life that sin is abounding. It's overtaking you. Guess what? I got a greater portion of grace for you. Yeah, I know that sin seems powerful. I got grace that's way more powerful than that sin. 
is good news. Is anyone encouraged? I am. I hope you are. I need this. I'm preaching to myself. You understand? Like, this is my stuff. I, I shared this. Uh, it just kind of came up at the shed a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it po- the s- scripture popped into my head. And so I read it in the Passion. I'm like, oh, wow. That's like such a more revelatory understanding of what it means. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. I can come and I get all that I need. I was walking home a, a couple of weeks ago and um, yeah, the Psalm 23 kind of popped into my head and it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And, uh, and I just kept saying that over myself, like, I shall not want. Like, all my needs can be met in God. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm in want, God. I have unmet need, but you're my shepherd and I shall not want. But too often for me, when I'm in that place of need or I'm in that place of want, the last place I feel like I can go or should go is before the Lord. And that's such a lie. Such, it's a demonic lie that keeps us trapped in our sin and our brokenness. And I believe God wants to set us free. Amen.